Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show what it's like when someone comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. It's like a person building a house by digging deep and laying the foundation on bedrock. When the flood came, the rising water smashed against that house, but the water couldn't shake the house because it was well built. But those who don't put into practice what they hear are like a person who built a house without a foundation. The flood water smashed against it and it collapsed instantly. It was completely destroyed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Two weeks ago, I found out that I was going to be a soccer coach for my daughter Everly's Lone Star soccer team. You can imagine my surprise since A, I've never played soccer and B, I couldn't even tell you all of the rules. Apparently, I checked a box when I was registering her that said, willing to be a parent volunteer. I just thought I was signing up to bring snack. But alas, last Tuesday rolled around and there I was on field 4C with seven six-year-olds staring at me ready for soccer practice. So I started with a name game that I've learned from my work here at the church. And then I used a silly time game that I learned from watching the cartoon Bluey with my kids. And I converted old basketball drills to, well, include a soccer ball. Whew, first practice done. And somehow I managed to fool the parents and myself that I knew what I was doing. The only problem was there are eight more weeks of soccer, which means eight more Tuesdays and eight more practices. The thought crossed my mind. Do we really need to practice? Does anyone ever really need to practice? Can't we all just wing it? The answer is, of course, yes, we need to practice. Practice is what makes us better. Practice, as the saying goes, makes perfect. So I wonder what you think of when you hear the phrase spiritual practice. The word practice can mean both noun and verb. So are spiritual practices the ways we carry out our faith? Or are spiritual practices gatherings of like-minded people coming together to work on a collective skill? Most of us would probably describe it as the first, the things we do to engage our faith. However, I do like the idea of a spiritual practice. Some might even call what we do on Sunday mornings spiritual practice. Brian McLaren describes spiritual practices as this, actions within our power that help us narrow the gap, the gap between who we are 
and who we are becoming. He continues to say spiritual practices could be called life practices or humane practices because they help us practice being alive and humanely so. They develop not just character, but also alertness, wakefulness, and humanity. Diana Butler Bass says spiritual practices are the things we do that shape who we are. They awaken us to God and to others. Practices weave together a way of life, create connections between people, order our choices, and deepen our wisdom about the living world, about living in the world. I'm sure many of you have heard a sermon on spiritual practices, and most of us are familiar with the common practices that stretch across different religions. Prayer, fasting, worship, service. But today I want to specifically look at the practices of Jesus. Probably not the soccer practice of Jesus, but who knows, he was a pretty cool dude. He could have played soccer. But the spiritual practices of Jesus, Yes, he did all those things I mentioned before, prayer and fasting. But if we take time to focus on the stories of Jesus in the gospel, I wonder if we can walk away with a few new and maybe even surprising spiritual practices. Over and over again in the gospels, we see the phrase, when Jesus heard them. Jesus was always on the move traveling and teaching and healing, but he always had time to stop and listen. He listened to people's hardships. He heard and granted their request. He asked follow-up questions and showed interest and care and concern. He listened without prejudice and stayed in the moment. He listened to those that no one else would listen to, like women and children, and tax collectors, and lepers. He even listened to the Pharisees who were trying to trick him. One of the most important spiritual practices for Jesus was listening. Not just hearing, but listening. I know I have mentioned this before in previous sermons, but one of the reasons I feel that our country is so divided right now is because we forgot how to listen. We don't take the time to hear one another's stories and understand their point of view. We too quickly assume instead of appreciate and judge instead of join others in the pursuit of commonality. I think we could all benefit from the spiritual practice of listening. Upon hearing the death of his good friend, John the Baptist, Jesus needed time alone. Matthew 14, 13 says, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Later in verse 23, we see Jesus again making time for himself. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Jesus was able to recognize his needs and prioritize self-care. 
In these verses and so many others, Jesus models for us the need for silence and solitude, being quiet and being still. I do want to note, however, that silence isn't always just being quiet. It's the absence of noise. And noise comes in many different forms. Literal noise, of course, but also maybe the noise of our inner critic, the noise of the news, the noise of cultural expectations. What noise do you need to silence? I wonder how you might take time this week for the spiritual practice of silence and solitude. Although Jesus found time alone worthy, it's also worth noting that he found equal value in community and friendship. He ate with people in their homes. He was a friend to those who didn't have any friends. He traveled and lived with a group of 12 disciples. Jesus found great importance in building and maintaining close personal relationships. I listened to a sermon this week from Pastor Jennifer, who serves at the American International Church in London. She had the opportunity to serve as a chaplain to the queue, which by the way, I think is the coolest job ever. A group of interfaith leaders were chosen and assigned different parts of the line as people were waiting to pay their respects to Queen Elizabeth. She tells of her experience working the line, asking the people questions like, how long have you been queuing? How are your feet holding up? Are you here alone? Time and time again, she says, when she thought she had found someone who was alone, they would say, no, I'm here with them. They are my queue family. She quickly realized that even though many had indeed gotten in line by themselves, they easily found community and connected with those around them. People from all different walks of life, all different ages, decorated veterans, heart surgeons, civil servants, housekeepers, finding commonality in their grief. The spiritual practice of friendship even in the most unusual places. Further study of the Gospels, and you become keenly aware that Jesus was the master of creative and unusual one-liners. He was constantly saying things that didn't make sense, or so it seemed. Things like, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Love your enemies? Jesus was always changing the narrative, seeing another perspective, imagining a new way, and reframing laws or rules to see the person first. I think about the story of the woman who committed adultery. All the elders wanted to stone her for her actions. Jesus didn't dispute the law, but shifted the message. Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Jesus found an alternate way, a way that honored the law, but more importantly, 
saw the humanity of the woman and granted her grace. Jesus shows us how to engage in what I'm calling the spiritual practice of imaginative reframing. I wonder how we could use this practice today. I recently launched a new Sunday school class called Nourish. We are working through a book by Mark Iaconelli called The Gift of Hard Things. In his chapter on the gift of difficult people, he says, rather than feeling annoyed or bitter or angry toward people, maybe we can see them as blessing, an opportunity to encounter God, to make contact with our own brokenness. He goes on to encourage us to approach difficult people as an opportunity to deepen our compassion for ourselves and others. He even suggests picturing that person as a child or a toddler. It is more difficult to disregard or demonize others if we have an image that reminds us of their humanity, of their soft, innocent beginning. The spiritual practice of imaginative reframing. No one can deny that Jesus prioritized people above anything else. He saw the dignity and worth in everyone, regardless of their gender, their social status, or their race. Coupled with this imaginative reframing is the spiritual practice of elevating humanity. We see this when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was set aside for rest and no work and healing would have been seen as work. And the Pharisees were always trying to see if Jesus would break the law and heal on the Sabbath. Well, he did, 14 times in fact. And Jesus grew frustrated with the Pharisees' doubt. So he says to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The spiritual practice of elevating humanity. These spiritual practices of Jesus fit Diana Butler Bass's description from earlier. They awaken us to God and others. They weave together a way of life, create connections between people, order our choices, and deepen our wisdom. How would life change if we practiced listening? If we took time to use our imagination and reframe a situation? If we put humanity first, made time for friendships, and recognized our need for silence and solitude? Like our scripture says today, when we hear Jesus's words and put them into practice, we are building a solid foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Many of you will remember a young man who used to serve as the youth ministry assistant here named Mitchell Lambert. He now works for a United Methodist organization called Project Transformation. Well, he's played soccer, has coached soccer, and is in general a fan of soccer. And all it took was one panicky text from me. And this Tuesday, he drove to South Austin 
from his home in Round Rock to help me run soccer practice. He brought cones and planned games. He had a note card in his pocket that he had written earlier that day, listing his plan for the afternoon. He led drills and taught the team proper soccer terminology. Out of the sheer goodness of his heart, he came to this mama's rescue to help with my little girl's soccer team. And before he left that night, he looked at me and said, see you next week, coach. Friends, when you are embarking on your own spiritual practices of listening or praying, elevating humanity, reframing, or any other spiritual practice that you choose, when it seems too hard or too much, just remember that you don't have to go at it alone. This is what the church is for, to support, love, care, nourish, and walk alongside one another on this spiritual journey, to answer a call or a text when you need it most, to join you in your practice. May it be so. Amen.